Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. This is not a new issue that our movement for LGBTQ freedom and equality from earliest days has encountered resistance from institutions and individuals who have opposed our inclusion and our equality, sometimes just from personal discomfort with who we are, but sometimes because in good faith they learned certain ideas about human sexuality and certain ideas about gender roles. And we have had to engage in conversation with faith leaders and civic leaders, and of course for many of us with members of our own family, to remind people that this is not a theocracy, This is a secular government that has freedom of religion, but also freedom from religion. That each of us should have the same basic rights under the civil law. This sort of resistance to LGBTQ equality with religious messages and religious opposition, it's not a conversation that is concluded. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simchat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Jean and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner as if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states and even some other countries recognize that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available on outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there's a movement determined to put us firmly back in our place, as they would have it. Cake shops and florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at any other minority group. Just imagine it. A shop owner says, my religious liberty prevents me from serving black people or Jewish people, so go away. It's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes the law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone, citing religious liberty, discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? 
Does one take precedence over the other when they come into conflict? Joining us now to delve into this issue is Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Jenny, welcome to Outcasting. Thanks, Lucas. It's great to be with you. So, Jenny, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your education, experience, what drew you to this work, what important cases you've worked on? What drew me to this work is that I was always drawn to feminist advocacy and to opportunities to challenge sexism, hypocrisy about gender roles and rules about sexuality. And when I came out as a lesbian in college, I became particularly focused on the fact that there was so much social stigma and there were criminal laws against our relationships and and a lack of recognition and protection for our families and a whole host of problems, I mean, to say nothing of police entrapment and violence and um, lack of medical care, a whole host of things. So I was drawn to civil rights work for LGBT people. That's why I went to law school, which I did in the mid-80s in New York at NYU. And I went there because I thought of New York City and Greenwich Village in particular as one of the important homes and safe places for queer people in in America. And so I was drawn there as a as a place to learn about our movement and our people and to think about how to use the law and advocacy to make our society safer and fairer and more welcoming to queer people. In terms of issues I've worked on, well, certainly one of the areas that consumed a lot of work for quite a few years was our work at Lambda Legal and across the movement to win the freedom to marry for same-sex couples. That's something that I saw as a profoundly important issue because it provides practical protections for our family relationships, but also because it's about whether we as queer people are respected, whether our loving commitments and relationships are respected, whether the law includes us and protects us, and whether we are seen as deserving the same kind of celebration and recognition, both by government, but by society more broadly. So I worked on quite a few marriage cases and other marriage-related work and led Lambda Legal's Marriage Project for a number of years. But I've worked on quite a few other issues that are certainly profoundly important as well, employment rights and access to health care, different ways that people protect their families, a host of issues. One of the things that Lambda Legal has devoted a lot of energy to is protecting young people of all ages, but certainly for young people in schools and in child welfare systems and juvenile justice systems across our society to insist that young people, whatever their identity, need to be respected. Bullying is terribly damaging, but not just to end bullying, but to affirmatively support each young person for whoever that person is. That's something that is very important for our movement overall, and it's something that Lambda Legal and and I and my work have held to be very important. We like to think that as Americans, we have these uncomplicated freedoms. The Pledge of Allegiance promises liberty and justice for all, and equality is written into the Constitution. There are some basic fundamental rights we all have as Americans. Can you give us some examples? 
Sure. Well, I think some of them are familiar from just the way we talk about them in our culture, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Also in the First Amendment to the Constitution, we have the right to assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances. We have rights against police searches and seizures without a warrant. We have the right against deprivations of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. These are all right in the Constitution. We have the right to trials by jury and the right in a trial to confront the witnesses who may be testifying against us. Some of these things come right out of bad problems that existed in England. When the framers were writing the Constitution, they wanted to provide explicit rights against some of the the bad practices uh, from the old country. There's a right for people who are held in government custody against cruel and unusual punishment. And then, of course, some of the incredibly important rights that were won through constitutional amendments, like an end to slavery and a guarantee of equal protection of the laws to all of us. These rights are written in first as against the federal government, but then when the 14th Amendment, this is the part of the post Civil War amendments, uh, when those were adopted, we gained those same rights against state and local governments. So we have these core rights as against every level of government. And then I have to add, there are freedoms that are incredibly important that are not written explicitly into the Constitution, but they've been recognized by the courts as essential to having the free society that the founders envisioned. So those include, for example, the right to privacy and the right to travel freely and the rights of parents to control the upbringing of their children. And then really a basic freedom or liberty interest in running our own life the way we see fit. These are rights that the courts have recognized systematically over time as being so basic to the concepts of liberty that the framers were trying to protect that they didn't write them into the Constitution. It's a little bit like the freedom to breathe. You know, They didn't write that into the Constitution, but they understood that that type of freedom was essential to have the country they were trying to create. Yet, these freedoms can become complicated when they meet real-world conditions or come in conflict with each other. On this series, we're going to talk about how the right to equality can come into conflict with religious liberty. But can you describe how some of these other freedoms or rights can be limited or complicated? Sure. So let's take freedom of speech as one example. We have the freedom to speak, but we don't have a freedom to cause harm to others with our speech. For example, to defame another person, that's to tell lies about another person that harm that person. We're not free to do that. Or to invade somebody else's private information and publicize it. We might do that through through speech or through something that we would write, but we don't have the freedom to invade privacy that way. And we don't have freedom to speak in ways that would create danger for other people. So the classic example is we're not free to cry fire in a crowded movie theater. You know, if there's no fire, if there's a fire, then of course you can do that. But if there's no fire, we can't do that because it creates danger to other people. And we have certain rules that create a framework to help us know what is permitted and what is not permitted about speech. And they often get at the same idea of not harming another person. So for example, a person may be free to speak loudly on a street corner in downtown, 
but they're not free to take a loudspeaker at one o'clock in the morning in a residential neighborhood and be blaring loud personal or political messages or outside of a hospital in a way that would create interference for people who are receiving medical treatment. You can't have a large demonstration in, a, in the middle of a busy street. If you're going to have a large demonstration, maybe you need to get a permit so that it's done in a way that doesn't cause problems for other people. You can petition your government for redress of grievances, but you can't necessarily do a sit-in that blocks the ability of government to function. So these are, these are all examples of uh, speech, protected freedom of speech, but there are guidelines to protect other people. You know, there are many other examples. Actually, another uh, area of example I could give, um, so we're generally free to dress however we want. Generally, we have to wear clothes, but we can choose what clothes we want to wear. The government can't require that every person wear a uniform just because a particular government might think that's a good idea. Now, we used to have laws requiring that people wear clothing that was considered appropriate for their gender. And so in earlier years, what we might call cross-dressing was actually a criminal offense. So these ideas do evolve over time. What we're dealing with today is generally we have a freedom to decide what to wear, but in a health pandemic, the government in some circumstances can require that people wear a mask to protect other people can't necessarily tell you what color mask to wear, but if there's a good enough public health reason, then an item of clothing can be required. This is the sort of balancing of individual freedom as against the need of the general public that the law has to do all the time. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Our guest is Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. So now let's turn to religious freedom. Are there ways religious freedom has been limited when it conflicts with other fundamental rights and laws of general application? There are many examples of this. And so maybe we could take one that looks at the connection between speech, which we were just talking about, and religion. Folks are probably aware of ongoing disputes that have happened outside of women's health clinics in some cities, where there's a free speech right for people who disapprove of whatever the medical care might be that they think is happening in the clinic, abortion clinics in particular, but women's health clinics more generally. So there's a speech right, but also a religious reason for that speech. And then there are the interests of the healthcare providers and the patients. And the Supreme Court has given us a framework for balancing those rights to protect the rights of those for religious reasons and personal reasons that want to protest, and also protect the interests of patients wanting to seek medical care and those operating that facility. So that's that's an example. We think of these religious rights issues often in terms of different settings, public settings versus private settings, religious settings versus government settings. 
and the rights of individuals. So for example, if you have a, a, a government setting or a public health setting, then that institution can't favor religious rights over, over other interests. And somebody employed at a public hospital, for example, might be required to do various aspects of their job, provide certain services that the institution is going to provide for patients. If it's a religiously affiliated medical setting, then that setting might decide we're just not going to provide certain services, and they might have a, re a greater religious interest in deciding what they will provide and what they won't provide. So we distinguish between public and private, religious and secular, and the difference between the rights of individuals in a secular setting and the rights of a religious institution to decide what they're going to do. Another example might be a public school is required by law to limit the institution engaging in prayer. If it's a public school, that's not permitted. If it's a parochial school, the right to have prayer in school is constitutionally protected. So there are different settings and there are different rules. And the Supreme Court sometimes has kept pretty busy telling us what the rules should be to balance the freedom of people to believe and to practice religion and the freedom of other people to not have that religion imposed on them against their will. Now, speaking on individual liberty, a lot of people are in favor of LGBT equality. And a lot of people think that once we won marriage equality, the battle for LGBTQ rights was over, that we are now on equal footing with everyone else. But that's not true, is it? No, I'm afraid it's not true. I mean, marriage equality is very important, both for practical reasons and for important symbolic and, and public understanding reasons. But it's, it's just one part of our lives and one part of our law. It's part of family law. There are many other parts of our lives, of course, and right now, the rules that govern employment and housing and what we call public accommodations, sort of public spaces, businesses or, or organizations, the law in those areas is somewhat unsettled. We need equal treatment in all of those contexts, in, in school, at work, when we're trying to rent an apartment. We need equal treatment by our justice system, by, by police, and by our government. We need equal treatment in the military um, and in other kinds of public employment settings. The rules vary from context to context, but the bottom line is that winning marriage did not affect the rules in most of those other contexts. Now, we had a very exciting, important development this past June from the Supreme Court in a case about employment. Actually, it was three different cases about employment, two of which had to do with sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace, and one had to do with gender identity discrimination in the workplace. People probably have seen news coverage, I hope, about this decision. The name of the decision is Bostock. That was the name of one of the cases. And the Supreme Court decided in that case that our existing federal law against sex discrimination, something we call Title VII, it's part of the Civil Rights Acts of 1964, that that protection against sex discrimination protects against sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination as 
different forms or flavors, if you will, of sex discrimination. So that was an, an enormous breakthrough, really huge, something that at Lambda Legal we've been working toward for many years, and likewise with our partners at the other LGBT legal groups and, and political groups, it really was a breakthrough. However, that federal law doesn't cover smaller employers, and the federal law has important implications for housing, healthcare, education, and credit. But it doesn't cover what we call public accommodations, business settings, obtaining services in a public setting. So we've made a lot of progress in these other areas, but we actually still have quite a bit yet to do. So when laws are passed that protect LGBT people from discrimination or Supreme Court cases like these protect LGBT people from discrimination, some people say that these LGBTQ protections give us special rights. Is that true? That is Absolutely not true. This is about equality. It, it's about everybody having the same opportunity, not special rights. Being treated as an equal should, I mean, that really is the birthright of each of us. There shouldn't be anything special about it. There's a reality that when a group that has been denied equality gains equal treatment, those who were in a special position of dominance, those who, who had legal rights that others did not have, they can feel that their special position was taken away uh, because other people have an equal opportunity too. There's a reality that achieving equality for more people is our nation's goal, and yet those who have had privilege and are in a less special position sometimes resist that. You know, we, we, we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we, we uphold the Constitution, we wave the flag and what it stands for, and then there's the social reality that it has taken generations of social movements, equality movements, and, and change to get to a more equal society, and we know we're not there yet, but we're getting there step by step, two steps forwards, one step back, and really what it's requiring of all of us is the conversation that nobody wants anything different or special. What we all want is just our fair place at the table, our fair opportunity to participate, to bring our gifts into the mix. The same conversation has been had repeatedly, whether the discrimination that's being challenged was based on race or ethnicity or sex or religion or sexual orientation or gender identity or disability or or other personal characteristics really it's the same issue for all of us that people need to be treated fairly based on who they are without biases whether they're conscious biases or unconscious biases that's what we're talking about that's what we all need and deserve so our goal is simple equality but there seems to be a movement to elevate religious liberty above the right to equality so that people and businesses can use their religious beliefs to justify discrimination against LGBT people in ways that wouldn't be allowed for other minorities. So that's a direct challenge to our right to be equal citizens. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, this is not a new issue that our movement for LGBTQ freedom and equality from earliest days has encountered resistance from 
institutions and individuals who have opposed our inclusion and our equality, sometimes just from personal discomfort with who we are, but sometimes because in good faith they learned certain ideas about human sexuality and certain ideas about about gender roles, you know, father knows best, uh, woman's places in the ki- in the kitchen, taking care of children, not having a job. I mean, some of these traditional ideas have religious framing for some people. Certainly, we have seen the Supreme Court, and the case I'll refer to here, the the Bowers versus Hardwick case, was decided by the Supreme Court back in 1986. This was a case about whether there could be state criminal laws against our intimate adult relationships. It was a case that came out of Georgia that had such a law that specifically uh, targeted same-sex intimate conduct among adults. And oddly enough, the U.S. Supreme Court cited the Bible, among other non-legal texts, to justify allowing that state law to stand. In other words, referring to religious ideas to justify a criminal law against some members of our society. Now, there was a vigorous dissent in that case, and the vigorous dissent ultimately came to be the law of the land 17 years later in a case that Lambda Legal litigated. But there we were in the mid-80s as AIDS was devastating the community, and we had our own Supreme Court say that that government could lock us up, perhaps for many years, for having a, a loving adult relationship in the privacy of our own homes. So it's not a new idea. And we have had to engage in conversation with faith leaders and civic leaders, and of course, for many of us, with members of our own family, to remind people that this is not a theocracy. This is, this is a secular government that has freedom of religion, but also freedom from religion, that each of us should have the same basic rights under the civil law. That is a conversation that has to continue today. You know this this sort of resistance to LGBTQ equality with religious messages and religious opposition. It it it's it's not a conversation that is concluded, but we did find in the marriage work that people came to recognize the difference between a religious marriage and a civil marriage license from the government, and that the freedom to marry for same-sex couples as licensed by the government and as celebrated by some religions, that did not mean that other faith traditions have to solemnize marriages for same-sex couples. The, the freedom of a, of a church or, or some other house of worship to pick and choose for whom they will celebrate marriage, that is, that is absolutely protected just as firmly as the rights of other faith traditions are to celebrate same-sex couples if they wish, and the responsibility that government not favor any of those religious views and instead treat all of us as equals under the civil law. We've run out of time, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks for joining us, Jenny. My pleasure. Anytime. That's it for this first part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. As each part of this series is produced, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Sarah, Chris, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Lucas. 
Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Outcasting. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.